The Return of Phoebe Darkling, Fairy Tales Punked, and Illustrated Myth Punk Anthology. This is the Panora Chronicles Radio Show Special Edition. I'm your host, Eric Fisk. Phoebe Darkling returns to the Fedora Chronicles radio show to discuss her most recent book, Fairy Tales Punked, an illustrated myth-punk anthology. What are the origins of the original fairy tales that have been sanitized and softened for modern audiences? How do these dark, cautionary folk tales of ancient lore change while being transcribed by the likes of the Brothers Grimm? And how well do we really know Little Red Riding Hood and Pinocchio? How does an author take an original fairy tale and turn it around and repurpose it for the realm of steampunk or diesel punk? Before we get started, be sure to download your own copy of Fairy Tales Punked, an illustrated myth punk anthology via the show page that can be found on the Fedora Chronicles main site under radio. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. So, Phoebe, just as an FYI, I'm waiting for your phone call. And I'm not sure if you're going to reach me via Skype or Zoom or just call me. And then my phone rang, and without even looking at it, I picked it up. And I said, Phoebe, it is so great to have you back on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. And there's a woman with a very heavy accent said... Sir, I would like to talk to you about renewing the warranty on your Ford Flex. Would you <laughs> would you please tell me the make and model and the year of your 2010 Ford Flex? Hold on a second. Phoebe, what 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 happened? Is this is this a joke? Is this a gag? Right, was I punking you? I think you were yeah. <laughs> Do you even own a Ford Flex? Well, I do. Well, not for not for okay. long though. Not for long though. We're gonna we, we're gonna we're going to be, um, we're gonna be getting something else. Something something that's a little more fitting for the life in in rural New England, where half the roads are paved with dirt and mud and snow. Because that'd be especially weird if you also didn't own that Megan model of car. Wouldn't that not be <laughs> weird? Absolutely. <laughs> Wasn't me. That'd be too expensive of a phone call, my friend. That would be. So, Phoebe, it's it's been too long since we've talked. It's been a long time. I know. How have you been? I'm good, actually. I'm really good. I got some excellent news yesterday, in Te- fact. Tell me about it. Well, um, so, you know, my, my second novel was No Rest for the Wicked. Right. And um, just sort of on a whim over the summer, I got interested in screenwriting and so I decided to write a pilot um, as if, you know, so taking that novel and adapting it for a television show. And I submitted the pilot on a whim to a competition and I'm in the top 50. You got to be out of it. Come on. I know. I just found out last night and I'm still, I'm still reeling. I'm so completely in shock because I had zero expectations going in which I think is the best way to enter any competition. Oh, really. that, that's the only way I can ever win. <laughs> yeah. So I was, I'm just gobsmacked. And so there are about 5,000 people um, at the beginning and I'm in the top 50. That's, that's incredible. Now for, for the two or three people who are listening, <laughs> who are you and how does everybody know you? Um, well, I, Started out uh, blogging on my own about steampunk. Right. Uh, and then I joined the Steampunk Journal. And so I'm now the primary editor for Steampunk Journal. Um, and so, yeah, so Phoebe Darkling is my steampunk name, basically. Uh, and it's also my publishing name. So I have three novels out now. Uh, and then my newest collection of short stories that's a multi-author collection that I I was the editor on actually just came out today. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm actually, so, yeah. I'm, a, I'm actually looking at it right now. It is no rest for the wicked mistress of none book one by you, Phoebe, my, my old steampunk friend, Phoebe. <laughs> Indeed. Who 
and what's um, what's amazing is that I get to say I knew you when. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, right? Like, even if I win the competition, uh, that doesn't. There's no guarantee it'll get made. It would actually be an incredibly expensive um, television show to make. <laughs> but at least you put your name out there. At least you tried. Yeah. That's yeah, it. I, oh, yeah, it's uh, like I said, I'm still just kind of in shock about the whole thing. I feel very proud of of what I did. And I've actually now written two feature films and one pilot since this summer. So I really got bitten by the, the screenplay bug. Um, it's, it's like I'm talking to Neil Gainham before he became rich and famous. Oh God. I can only hope. All right. <laughs> So what what else what else is going on before we get to your book or your latest okay. book? What's sure. what's going on in the world of steampunk and diesel punk and all retro punk with COVID? I know that it's this this might be a bit of a shock. I don't know if you had intended to talk about this, but but what's going on with the pandemic? Well, unfortunately, you know, a lot of uh, all of the conventions and things have been either fully canceled or move to some kind of online format. I have seen a lot of wonderful performers mm -hmm. putting performances online, which is so cool. Um, and so, yeah, it's really through a monkey wrench and a lot of, and a lot of people's plans. You know, I, I go back, I, I'm in Germany, but I go back to the U S a couple times every year to speak at mm -hmm. steampunk events. And, um, you know, the, the the last time I was supposed to go was March, and that was when lockdown happened here for the first time in Germany. And so, uh, and then I was going to be back in November, and obviously that didn't happen. I'm not even allowed um, to travel to the U.S. Well, no, I could get to the U.S., I just couldn't get home very well. Right. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been a real bummer. Um, I mean, everything about this year. Uh, COVID-wise has been a real bummer, but I know that there are a lot of uh, makers, especially uh, vendors, who are suffering from the lack of convention. Um, so, hey, folks, if you need to buy Christmas presents, look to these individual makers rather than, say, Amazon. They don't need your money. Um, but leather workers and, and uh, costume designers and prop makers, like, they could really, really use some support right now from the community. This is the time. This is the time that everybody says, oh, I'm going to support local businesses or I'm going to support online artisans. There's never been a better time to, to yeah. celebrate and support these people with your dollar. Put your, put your money where your mouth is literally and help these people out. So yeah. And crowdfunding campaigns too. Um, you know, I'm very much involved in the world of, of crowdfunding, and I brought back a feature on Steampunk Journal now where once a month I'm singling out steampunk projects and trying to get people extra support um, because that is also a really wonderful platform um, for supporting all kinds of different things. Um, I see a lot of games, yeah. so especially people out there who are gamers. It's a lot of fun tabletop and card games that have a, a beautiful steampunk aesthetic. And books, there's lots of books. And I actually got an adorable set of uh, children's books mm -hmm. for my nephew via Kickstarter. And it's like about a rabbit and a squirrel who invent things. And they are in a totally steampunk. And it's going to come to him just in time for his birthday in February. So I'm really happy about that. That's fantastic. <laughs> that is. And you've done so much for the, for the steampunk community. I don't even know where to begin. I think that the entire steampunk community owes you such a, a huge debt of gratitude because uh, not, not only do you gr do great work on your own, but you spend so much time promoting everybody else. That's worth Oh, I really appreciate that. So <laughs> I, I, I have no, I mean, I, I don't want to gush and fawn all over you and everything that you've done, <laughs> but I mean... Uh, and I don't want to get into this too much. Two years ago, there was a there's a crisis here in the Northeast for steampunk. Yeah, yeah. And you really sort of sounded the call, saying, "There's well, we need to do something I mean, about." It. You're one of the people. One of the people. I mean, yeah, but I mean, I want to give credit where credit's 
you, it was Beth Godin, who is one of our contributing mm-hmm. uh, writers. She's the one that actually did the big story because she is, she lives in that area and she knew a lot of the people. Yeah. So bad props to Beth um, yeah. for work on, on that story. Definitely. Absolutely. So where do we go from here as far as what, what are we going to do once the pandemic restrictions are lifted? What's the one thing that the steampunk community needs to do to get itself back on its feet other than what you had already said, specifically um, help promote and support others by buying their wares? What, what's, yeah, on, what's on the agenda? Yeah, that's definitely a biggie. One thing that I think is super cool about the steampunk community is how charitable they are. Um, I see a lot of events held for charitable causes and, uh, you know, like get a dollar off your ticket to the event if you bring canned food and things like that. And I think there's a very giving spirit Mm -hmm. in the steampunk community. And so really anything that we can do to harness that generosity and that enthusiasm, everyone's going to be so happy to see each other again when we finally get a chance. Um, I also think we're going to see a lot of uh, very artistic masks. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Right? I think I think that that is, has a lot of potential to actually stay with us, even just like as a both practical and a costume um, piece for quite some time. So, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, All right. So let's talk about... The other reason why you're here, you have a new book. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. It's called Fairy Tales Punked, an illustrated Miss Punk anthology, uh, which might be a punk that people didn't even know about. Or, you know, I mean, there are so many of them now. I think I saw at some point the count was over 60 mm-hmm. different punk genres. Um, but, but Miss Punk is actually kind of a broader one. I mean, it's basically fractured fairy tales, right? which has always been a favorite of mine. Um, and so that's why I'd, I'd had this idea for years. There have been other, there have been plenty of other wonderful collections that are usually a single punk subgenre. So like just diesel punk fairy tales or just steampunk fairy tales or just space reimagining fairy tales. But I thought, how cool would it be to just put them all together? Because personally, I don't discriminate. I love all the punk subgenres. Right. Um, right. All the anacro punks are, are cool by me. And so I decided to sort of put out the call that um, it was any myth tradition and any punk were fair game. Um, and because I'd been planning it for a while, I, I had sort of recruited a bunch of authors that I knew from different projects, one of which was actually a steampunk fairy tale collection called Queen of Clocks. Um, and so that might be the first punked fairy tale I actually wrote, which was a horror retelling of Pinocchio. That does sound f- fascinating. What is it about this one story or this retelling of Pinocchio that's that's different from the original? What made it steampunk? Well... I, steampunk isn't exactly, it, it uses alchemy. And so that's something that you see quite a lot in steampunk, but it, it's not always present. Um, but so my Pinocchio was, was clockwork and it was brought to life using alchemy. And what was really fun about it was that I looked at the original source material and um, it's so different from the Disney version. I mean, that's always true. Right. But, um, so some things in my horror story are actually from the original story because they were horrific and Disney took them out. For instance, did you know? So there's Jimmy the Cricket, right? Yes. Yeah. So the cricket shows up and tries to tell Pinocchio, you know, like, mind your P's and Q's. And Pinocchio kills him with a hammer. Like- and so is then, is, is then haunted by the ghost of the cricket. That's the original I'm dumbfounded. <laughs> Jiminy Cricket in the original Pinocchio <laughs> is killed. Yep. On their first meeting, Pinocchio killed him with a hammer. And then he is haunted by the spirit of Jiminy Cricket. That is... I mean, 
Yeah, they don't they don't say it's a ghost, but like the cricket shows up again later, and you've just, and you've seen him smashed with a hammer. So I I interpret that as being haunted by a cricket. Are we sure that Jiminy Cricket is a cricket, and not a cockroach? Because how many times have you th- you thought you killed the cockroach, and it turns out that it's still alive? <laughs> I mean, I don't I I don't know what what uh, Kaladi's, uh intention was exactly there, but um, yeah, I mean, Pinocchio Pinocchio is really naughty. Oh yeah, he, mur- he murders somebody. Like it's actually a really dark story, and so that's why it was it was so easy to look at it as a horror story instead. There is because an, it was actually quite horrific. <laughs> there is an aspect of Pinocchio that does remind me quite a bit of Frankenstein. Yeah, that was a little bit what I was what I was channeling. Yeah. Now, so yeah, it's. It takes the form of a deathbed confession, not by Geppetto, but Geppetto's assistant. So that was that was an addition that I made to the story. Obviously, Geppetto has no assistant. Um, But so, yeah, it's it starts out talking about I, you know, I I make this confession now, not not to alleviate my own guilt. For surely I am guilty, but to make sure that no one else ever repeats Geppetto's terrible experiment. And then it goes on from there to account the events of this spring where they brought the puppet to life. And I wasn't prepared to actually really sort of talk about this to an extent. But the way that Disney has Disneyfied so many of the fairy tales, mm-hmm. like there are like actually darker aspects of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Oh, yeah, they're all dark. They're and, all- and even, you know, and even if you look back at the original Grimm fairy tales, they whitewashed aspects. So as dark as they are, they're not as dark as the original. If you want a good time, read the old, read a translation of the original French version of Little Red Riding Hood. That is brutal. It's brutal. It is. There's definitely no woodcutter. There is no, there is no rescue. Right. I remember, (laughs) I remember in the original Little Red Riding Hood that there are, and I'm not sure if it's if it's a new interpretation or maybe it's one that I just recently read from an anthology such as yours, that Little Red Riding Hood actually was pretty capable of taking care of herself. Uh, no. Okay. Not, not, not the old French one. A lot of people have taken that direction with a lot of the princesses, the princess types um, in the fairy tale reinterpretations. That's a very, very common trope. Um, are these princesses that that can get the job done? No, she, I mean she's very much. She's like an eight-year-old girl. I mean she's a little girl. Oh my god! In, in the yeah, in the original, and there's this line there where the where the mother says, you know, make sure you take the path of pins, don't take the path of needles. So okay, I should back up. The reason I know so much about this is I actually took a class in college called Twice Told Tales, and we had a whole textbook that was just Little Red Riding Hood retelling um and so i spent a lot of time with the original original um but yeah and so it turns out this whole path of pins and path of needles is actually has to do with girlhood versus womanhood and like choosing to grow up too fast is what actually gets her killed um so there's cannibalism uh yeah it's real dark (laughs) it's real dark and we thought that this would be a good idea to read to children. <laughs> well, but the original, original purpose of, of these, and, you know, Grimm's, they don't call them fairy tales. They're called uh, children's and household tales. Okay. Uh, yeah, there aren't actually fairies in Grimm's fairy tales. <laughs> uh, fairies are more of a British kind of tradition. But, um, but yeah, so the, they are morality tales. They are, they are do this to be safe. I mean, the, the moral, the, a big moral of Little Red Riding Hood is don't, don't talk to strangers. Um, and because there was fear over foreigners. And that, that same lesson, uh, you know, moral is in a lot of the stories is don't talk to strangers. That is. Because of <laughs> That is probably one of the most important lessons kids need to learn. At a very early age, but I don't think that you want to traumatize them either. You know, I, I well, and that's why Disney whitewashed there, right? So, like, right, you still shouldn't take the poison apple. 
from the old lady. Um, but it looks a lot different. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. So we uh, now tell now promise me you're not coming down with 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 the with the plague with the pandemic. I don't think so. Oh. I never leave my house, so it'd be really hard for me. <laughs> I think it's allergies. Honestly. Yeah. As much as much as I love my sons and I want them to be safe and sound, I I wish they would leave the house <laughs> just for a little <laughs> bit. Go outside, play. Um, we live like like literally we live in a field out in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere. And they could very easily. Okay, they have places to go. They yeah. have places to go. We, I mean, Ringe, New Hampshire is not a bustling metropolis, as I make it out to be sometimes. Um, so what would, what's the purpose of whitewashing and toning down all of these fairy tales for Disney? You mean besides commercialism? No, no I mean, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, why would you want to take your kids to these to these scary movies? But there's something about kids who want to be scared so that they can overcome their fear. But if, I mean, there, yeah, there is a certain adrenaline to be to being afraid, and there are better ages. It's it's really interesting how it differs from kid to kid. But but even like within six months, um, how much older or younger a kid is and how it affects them. Right, because like one of, my, one of my favorite movies of all time is *The Nightmare Before Christmas*, and my husband has a younger and a, a younger brother and younger sister who are just younger enough when they saw it that they were terrified, and it never occurred to me to be afraid of it. That, yeah, that is a, that is a fascinating. That is like, yeah. who would have thought? I mean, I can understand. We we got into this big huge fight. Back in 1984-1985, when Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was first released on VHS. Do you remember mm -hmm. VHS cassettes? I do, in fact. Just, you know, a, an inkling. No, no, I totally agree. <laughs> and the thing is, is that I'm going to have a hard time explaining to some of our audiences. See, movies used to come in these tape cassettes. And you used to put the tape cassette into this machine that always said 12 It always in the clock it was impossible at the time <laughs> you i mean if you were like this grand alchemist and you had a phd in computer science maybe you could figure out how to fix the clock maybe. <laughs> but we we had this epic fight about my because my copy of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, because back then it was, I think as far back as 84 and 85, they were a little bit on the expensive side. And if you wanted to actually own a movie, not just rent it, but actually own it, um, that was some serious cabbage. And I bought the movie, but we didn't own a VCR. And oh. And because my mother thought that VCRs were way too expensive, and I think she secretly thought that they were like the like something demonic. There was something evil about VCRs. But my aunt and uncle had a VCR, and we were going to be staying there for the weekend. I wanted to bring Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom, to watch it. Yeah. But the thing is, is that my cousin Jenny, I think was four or five at the time. And trying to, you know, I know, I know Molaram pulling the heart out. That's fake. That's all yeah. movie magic. Right. But my cousin didn't. Yeah. But. I actually had an interesting time when I was, I used to work in a science museum at a, uh, it was actually the library in the science museum. And so people would come to us with science questions. And, but this one was not science. This one was kind of amazing. There's a mom. She's like, so my husband decided to introduce my child to the music of Michael Jackson. And oh. I was like, ooh, this is going to be great. Okay. Um, right. Where is this going? Um, and so, I don't know. He was like 10. And she said, so he showed him the video of Thriller. Yep. And, and now he's terrified of werewolves. Can you explain to him scientifically how werewolves aren't real? 
How old how old is he or was he at the time? I mean, she didn't say he looked like he was maybe nine or ten. Um, maybe he was younger and tall for his age. Right. He was older, but I didn't think it should have been a problem. But yeah, and it was really it was so funny because like I and I took this very seriously, right? I was like, this kid is scared. I'm going to do my best as a you know science education professional to try to do this. And so um, we talked about a bunch of different things. And then and he was still not convinced. Like half an hour I'd spent with this kid. He still wasn't convinced. And I was like, well, I mean, Michael Jackson, actually, I read an interview with him one time talking about how hard it was to put that makeup on because those big contact lenses yep. are, are really uncomfortable. And you could see the tears running down his face. And the kid went, wait, what? I was like, yeah, it was makeup. Yeah. They, that was all done with makeup. And he's like, oh. And I just wanted to shake the mom. And I was like, you didn't start with, it's TV, it's not real? <laughs> 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 you just made me spend half an hour on this. <laughs> no, it was fun. It was, it was what I lived for, actually. I loved answering those kinds of questions um, at the museum. Well, Here's the other thing that it was um, getting back to when you when you bought like videos, mm. when you bought when you bought music videos and a music video, especially like Twitter. I mean, not Twitter. <laughs> I, I, Freudian, Freudian slip much, Eric, because I'm thinking about two different things at once here. The video, the original video, everybody knows where they were when MTV premiered that mm, mm-hmm. and when they sold the video the music video on vhs cassettes because the video was so short the actual music video they actually had a making of right right after I think yeah i think that's where i saw the thing with the tears yeah and it was just like every video should have a making of so that if your kid is terrified, you can show him that. <laughs> Most music videos, it, it more has to do with, uh, you know, junk in the trunk and whatnot. Right. Probably, probably not as afraid. But uh, even just for the just for the, the coolness factor, I would love to know how stuff's made. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, and I'm also thinking, getting back to Pinocchio for a second. Mm. I had a hard time with Pinocchio when I was younger because of my relations or my non-relationship with my dad, um, who, for reasons I can't get into, sort of had to abandon our family for about 12 years. And watching Geppetto walking through the streets at night with the fog, looking for his son, Pinocchio, broke my heart. And I remember, I mean... Chappetto's looking for Pinocchio and he knew him for all of like what? A couple of hours maybe? Yeah. Um there are other aspects of fairy tales like that that are heartbreaking. Um like Hansel well, and Well, they certainly so right so in the Disney movie they certainly did that in a heartbreaking way. Yeah. Um if you want to go back to the source material, I mean I don't want to ruin anything for you, but um Pinocchio runs away from Geppetto and then when Geppetto finally finds him, he starts crying out, Daddy, Daddy, don't hurt me. And a policeman comes and beats Geppetto and arrests him. And Pinocchio is left alone. Oh, my God. For night. That's the, yeah. And so he manages to get home, but it's locked because Geppetto locked the house. So he gets in somehow, but he's soaked, soaked with rain. And so he gets in and he builds up the fire and he puts up his feet to get warm and he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he, his feet have burned off. Oh, my God. <laughs> so when Geppetto gets out of jail, he comes home and he finds Pinocchio crying without his feet and takes pity on him and, build, and makes him new feet. And that's the first time Pinocchio promises to be a good boy. But it's, ama- it's amazing the transformation. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, and it did happen, right? Geppetto did go through the streets trying to find Pinocchio. It was very important to him. But yeah, so Disney made the, leaned into what, what you reacted to, yeah. which was kind of heartbreaking, um, but was not Carlo Collati's intention. 
right? You were talking about what what's the point of fairy tales? Pinocchio is is don't be naughty. Yes. I mean, be well behaved is actually the message of Pinocchio. Is don't don't be Pinocchio. <laughs> <laughs> don't be a wooden head. Yeah. What other what other what other things about fairy tales do I not know that I should, especially as a parent? Um, well, definitely pre-screen any, if you're going to go with anything source material-wise, um, read them to yourself before you read them to your kids, because mm. you don't want any of these surprises. Um, keep, keep, keeping in mind that they are now 18 and 16. Well, so then they would probably read them on their own <laughs> yeah. if they want to read them. Um, yeah, I mean, in Fairy Tales Punked, I actually had someone ask, they're like, or I was looking for other people to review. So I told them about this and they're like, oh, but I don't read children's books. And I was like, oh, sweetie, no, these are not, these are not children's stories. They're not, they're not things that would be too hard to handle, but they're definitely not aimed at children. These are for, these are adult reinterpretations. Of fairy tales and so some of them are scary and and some of them are very funny but the humor it wouldn't be child humor at no. all um have you had a chance to read any of them i i have i have gone through it and i have looked at a lot of them and one of the things i also wanted to ask you about this is that when you and i remember that you were looking for authors for this project. Mm -hmm. And I really regret not submitting my idea to you. Um, the, the window is open for the volume two. Aha. The, 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 we're doing volume two. Nice little, nice little, little plug in there. <laughs> what, what was the, what was the ground rules for this project that you told all of the authors? Um, well, so in addition to what I said before about any punk, any myth is fair game. Um, there was a word count window, which was 2,000 to 10,000 words. Um, but that was, I, I mean, I left it super open. I said, you want to do fantasy? You want to do sci-fi? You want to do mystery? You want to do horror? I'm, I'm open to whatever because there are all, I mean, all of that. Any way that you mess with the tale is punking it. And so, um... So yeah, so like our collection, we had two ended up being noir, um, which is a really you know fun style, highly stylized way to write. Mm -hmm. um, but it ended up shaking out. Well, and so I had this Facebook group for the authors, and so I knew before I ever received any of the submissions, I knew what they were working on, and so I had a and I made them declare, this is my source material, this is the punk I'm doing. Because it was fine if there was multiple, you know, Adam Punk or whatever. But I didn't want anybody to choose the same story. Right. Um, which, as it was, we ended up with a lot of these princess retellings, which I hadn't really realized until I was deciding the order of the book, and I had to separate them. Um, and so, yeah, the actual, like, curation of, uh, of the order of stories in an anthology is really complicated. <laughs> I want you to get to that, but I also want you to talk about your own story, Making Bones, and what went into that. So Making Bones is a noir Cinderella reimagining. Um, so it's <clears throat> it's set in World War II um, when all the men should be off at war, but a lot of the mafia had bought their way out of it. And so it left just the women behind. And so my Cinderella character, who is actually never named, um, she is a cleaner for her family in that her stepsisters are um, hit women because that's who's available to do the hits are the women. And so I, I mean, it really started from this in my head. I was like, Haha, what if she was a cleaner for the mob? And just kind of went right because, like, she's a she's a cleaner, she's made in the original. But then I thought I I made this jump to the to the mafia connection, and so um, making bones is actually a term from mafia era 
in the sort of heyday because it's, it's actually short for making your bona fides. Aha. Uh-huh. And so that's the first kill. That's how you make bones is your first kill. Um, and so I ran with that as I was doing, I, you know, I did a lot of research. I always research. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so yeah, so I did a bunch of research and I came across this. And so then I ended that. I used that as an extended metaphor, um, the more literal bones in the story itself. So getting back to the curating process, mm-hmm. did you publish all the stories that you received? Um, I did not. Okay. So almost almost all of them. Uh, so something unusual, there are a couple unusual things about this collection was that, you know, I mentioned I had sort of recruited the authors. So these were people that I knew. So I was pretty confident about the quality of the stories, no matter what. Um, and so, but then I am also an editor, like not just a copy editor, but like a, a full on developmental editor. So people submitted their stories and then there was a stage built in where I would give them, it was a, I either accepted it straight out or I gave them a chance to revise and resubmit. Um, and so some of them needed a lot more revision. Some of them needed just a little bit. Um, there was only one, what it felt like was not so much a story, but an outline of a much longer story. And so that one didn't work for me because it was, it felt more like they were actually what they wanted to do was write a novel. Right. And this was the summary of a novel, not a story with a clear beginning, middle and end and characters that I cared about. So that was the only one that I, I couldn't see a way, like it would just take so much to develop it. And it would have to cut so much to, to hit the length requirement. So that was the only one that I said, eh, I just don't think this is going to work. Um, and then one other person decided to pull their story because he was so inspired by the prompt that he wanted to keep writing about this same character and was thinking about putting together a book of short stories about that character. So that was a nice reason to not have his story was that he felt so inspired. Um, but yeah, but otherwise, I, otherwise I accepted everybody. I'm going to have more submissions this time, so I don't know um, if I'll be able to accept everybody or not. Was there one of the stories that you received that sort of like just blew you away? That it was like it was a retelling of a fairy tale that you've probably never even heard of, or was there some, someone's take on it that was just over the, over the top? And it's like you went like. I never thought of this fairy tale this way. The ones that struck me the most were the ones that I was actually not familiar with the source material. Um, and so there's one that's a Romani tale. That's a black dog, Wildwood that I think, uh, you know, I was trying to assign what punk each of these were. And I decided that I made up a new word, which was rockabilly punk um, for that one. Cause it really had a very 1950s aesthetic to me. Um, and so, yeah, so I wasn't familiar with that one at all. And so I had no idea where it was going to take me. Um, so I enjoyed that one. And there's a Cossack tale that's set in space. And so those were both really fun way to experience uh, these cultures that I didn't actually know. But, um, but, but then on the other side of it, I mean, the, the, there's a lot of joy in reading a story that you think you might know where it will go. I thought Wound was especially good. That's the last story. Um, in the book, and it's one of the two longest ones. And that one wasn't so much a retelling as I felt like that was an original fairy tale that followed um, followed in the footsteps of fairy tales, but but was really a unique its own story. So wound was a was an especially a favorite of mine. <laughs> Did you have a favorite? Um, not yet. I want, I want to reserve judgment till I finished reading it all. Um, okay. Is there one fairy tale that everybody knows, but nobody picked to, to punk and you were surprised that nobody, nobody did that specific fairy tale. Like I, I, for whatever reason, I had it in my head to do a retelling of Goldilocks and the three bears. I may have spoiled it. Hmm. Um, was there no, one? I mean, I didn't really go in with expectations because I knew that different fairy tales would speak to different people. And like I said, some of these people I'd already worked with on a different fairy tale, steampunk fairy tale anthology. So I knew what they had done before and I knew that they were going to do something completely different um, for the next one. And so 
no, I just, I just really left myself open to whatever came in. I'm not surprised that there were a lot of princess retellings just because those are most of the Disney movies are the princess ones. And so they're the ones that we've seen and we are the most familiar with. Um, but no, I mean, I was pretty open. I want to just ask you again about, and this is sort of like a delicate topic, especially with, um, the political climate that we're in right now. Are there some fairy tales that also need to be revisited in the age of feminism and empowerment? Well, I mean, this is why I wasn't surprised to see a lot of the princess ones redone because all of them are all of the, the, the ones, the versions of things that are being done now, you don't have shrinking violet princesses that need a prince to save them. Right. They save, right. They save themselves or they save everybody or they save another woman or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, definitely the princess ones have gotten, uh, have gotten redone in that spirit, but for quite some time, that's not really new um, anymore. It's kind of, I would, I would actually be kind of shocked to see any fairy tale that involves one of the traditional princesses where she doesn't save herself um, at this point, because that's just very much the direction that it's, that it's gone in, at least in literature. Um, there's definitely demand for these, these women that can learn and grow and take charge of their own destiny. Because, also, looking back at a lot of the fairy tales that we were talking about earlier, um, and the and the the retelling of the fairy tales mm-hmm. from decades ago, uh, when I was much younger, much much younger, uh, we had a book of fairy tales. Whereas, whenever there was a a, a damsel in distress, there was always. A, a man had to come and save her as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, a fine example, little red riding hood had to eventually be saved by the woodsman. Hansel and Gretel had to be saved by um, their dad. Their, their dad shows up. Yeah. Their dad shows up after he gets rid of the wicked stepmother. Mm-hmm. Who was their actual mother in the original BT dubs? Why would, that's the, that's, that to me is fascinating. Why would a mom abandon her kids in the woods like that? They were starving. Okay. Yep. There is, but this is a thing that the Grimm's brothers did. If you look at the original fairy tales, almost pretty much every time it's the stepmother that, that the Grimm's brothers blame for something, it was a mom in the originals. So like, don't be a horrible mother. That was part of the morality tale aspect. But sorry, so I interrupted. So no, you were talking about, yeah, so, it's, it's so men a, have to men have to come in and save them. It yeah. it because the thing is that that was a trend decades ago, a half century. I'm gonna I'm gonna age myself. A half century ago, there seemed to have been a a, a movement, or I'm misremembering this, where all the step parents were evil, and all the damsels in distress had to be saved by a man, whether it was... Well, that's a, much longer than half a decade ago. I mean, that's, that's from the source material. Okay. Now, obviously, a lot has changed since then. Right. Um, what, what do you think are the events that have been the catalyst for this, for this change? What is well, it? I think more, more, more female writers, for starters. Um, you know, the, the, the chroniclers of the original tales were men. Um, so even if there was a different version, so, I mean, we, we need to give Jacob, Jacob Gribb, uh, a lot of props. He actually was a scholar. Like he took a scholarly interest in folklore. So when they were collecting the tales, um, most, they, for the most part, they really were close to what was being told, but they did, they watered down a little bit with the mother versus stepmother. Um, and there's also some Christian stuff in there that has nothing to do with the original. Oh, really? The old, 
See, yeah. Now, what, how, yeah, there are angels, angels show up sometimes and do stuff. Like, um, like, like the Blue Fairy in Pinocchio has a very angelic look to her. Was Does that date back to the original um, Pinocchio? Um, so, so, so there is a Blue Fairy, um, but, you know, she actually doesn't bring Pinocchio to life. The wood is alive already. Uh, he starts making trouble for Geppetto before he's ever a puppet. So, um, yeah, so the, so the Blue Fairy shows up, but it's actually quite late in the story. Um, she's another figure, adult figure, trying to get him to behave. And then she actually rescues him at one point. Um, he's hanged. And you wouldn't think that would hurt a puppet, but he does die. And then she brings him back to life. Um, so, but she's not described in angelic terms. And I think she might even just be the blue lady. Right. I don't know that she's actually referred to as a fairy. And that one, of course, I didn't read in Italian. So I don't know. I don't know what word Kalati used. Um, but no, no, I'm, I'm talking about like straight up angels. Like, no question. These are angels. This like Michael shows up and does stuff in some of the Grimm's stories. The Archangel so, Michael makes makes a makes an appearance. Yeah. yeah. Like there's one of my favorite stories I ran across I'd never heard of before. It was called The Moon Thief. And it was about these four brothers and they were walking at night and they came to a village and there was light. And they were like, what is this light? And they said, oh, it's the moon. We made it. And they're like, well, we want the moon. We want that for our town. So they stole it and they took it back to their town. And as they died, each brother wanted a quarter of the moon buried with them. And so then when the last brother died, it became dark at night and the dead rose. And so Michael had to come down and blow his horn and put the dead to rest. That is, that, that is pretty epic. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah. So like there, there is no, no questions asked Christian stuff in the, in the Grimm's fairy tales that had, nothing to do with the oldest versions of some of these stories, but that's what was being told at the time in the 1800s when they were recorded. Was that how it was originally written or did Christianity or Christian writer? Well, you have to keep in mind that what they were doing were, they were recording oral tradition. So these are stories that were not written down in a lot of cases before the Grimm's brothers showed up. Little Red Riding Hood is actually French originally. Um, I mean, there's a lot of cross-pollination as someone who lives on the border with France, um, I can tell you. But yeah, so the oldest version of Little Red that we have is actually French. Um, and yeah, so I mean, the, this this was the version that was being told around the campfire or the, the hearth at the time that they mm-hmm. started writing. Them. Um, these were oral. And that's why these books were so important. Was be, And that's why Jacob Grimm was so interested because he wanted to preserve the culture um, before it disappeared because it wasn't written down. Another thing that I wanted to ask you about was the, are wolves and bears overused in in the original stories? Or is is that like a recent phenomenon in only the past couple of centuries? Um, No, because you have to keep in mind that the people who were telling these stories lived in little villages that were nestled in valleys that were surrounded by the black forest. Um, and there really were wolves and bears and things that you had to, there were wild animals that would come and kill your livestock and stuff like that. So no, I think it was a very real threat. Um, now they're all gone. Um, like you cannot find a wolf in this part of the country. I don't think. That isn't in a zoo, but they were definitely real threats. And the the dark forest, this whole idea of, of the unknowable, the wilderness that was outside of your nice manicured, like that's a very primal fear. And so wild animals are a manifestation of that primal fear. But um, but yeah, it's I don't think no, I don't think it was overstated. I think this was real. This, <laughs> is, this, this is a real, real threat people (laughs) now what advice would you give to an author 
who would like to submit something for volume two or volume three that I'm sure would be in the works sometime in the not too distant future. How do you go? How do you go about this? How do you go about punking a fairy tale? Well, one, one thing that's important is that volume two has a sub theme because so much of volume one ended up being these princess stories. I wanted to focus on something else for the second book. So it is actually fairy tales punked creature feature. And so all of the stories need to involve some kind of beast or creature, magical being um, in some central way. And it was really funny because, like, I put up in this Facebook group months ago, I told them, I, I will, this is what I want to do for Volume 2. I listed, oh, I don't know, 20 different possible creatures. And then I think six people answered right away. And they're like, oh, can I do blah, blah, blah? Can I do blah, blah, blah? And they were all things I had not named. Because <laughs> there's just so many. And so I think we're going to have a really cool, it's, and it's not all going to be monsters necessarily. They just need to be some kind of creature, some non-human. And then volume three is going to be object lesson. So there has to be some important object that's at the, at the core of the story. So that's the first thing I would say is that volume two um, does have this sub theme of creature feature. Um, so my other advice always with fairy tales is, is you have to go to the source material. You cannot rely on any version that you have read, even if it's like a picture book that you grew up with, you need to go. And these stories are old, so they're free. Right. They're right. Um, so you can find them on the internet. You can read the, I mean, okay. Okay. Maybe not original, original because they had to be translated. Right. But like you go to the source material first because it's probably weirder and more wonderful than you ever realized. Cause I, I actually wrote a screenplay. You know, I was saying I've written a couple features now. And so I wrote one using German fairy tales and folklore. So I actually read all of both volumes. There's also two volumes of the Grimm's fairy tales. Um, so I read them all or at least skimmed them all. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of weird, wacky stuff in there that, would be really fresh and new because a lot of these stories have been done before. So finding source material that hasn't been done before, um, you know, some stories lend themselves to a different time period better than others. Um, So like if you're setting out to write a steampunk or a diesel punk story, some of these narratives might work better than others, but just looking at the source material and being open to the story that's there and being like, Oh, how can I, what would this be like if it was set in this time and place instead? What would this be like if it was set here? What if this was not magic, but science? And there's a lot of really fun ideas that just sort of bubble up after reading the source material. Yeah, because the thing is that it was just like I'm listening to you and all of a sudden it's like I'm kind of like, oh, I know, I know, I know what I'm going to do. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> <Wait. laughs> the- the pers- the, I mean, I know that this is crazy and, and, and maybe the, you're, has anybody ever done a, a punked version of Little Red Riding Hood from the perspective of the wolf? Um, I, I think you remember the, the, the class that I took. I think that there was one, but it was probably from the 19th century. You know, it wasn't a punk, but, um. But no, that, that that would be very interesting. That would be like what? What yeah. was he thinking? What what were you thinking? You know, and it was just like I mean, um, well, and like I said, definitely go back and read. Yeah, read that one because it's amazingly horrible. <laughs> what you, the wolf actually does. You know what um, you you know what you're going to have to do is send me a link or all the links to where you can find the original. Uh, stories to put in in your show page yeah because there is a there is a really good online depository and i can't think of it right now but you will i'm sure i'll think of it as soon as we hang up yeah you you'll you'll remember it now what about (laughs) what now how does somebody go about steampunking or diesel punking a, a a story like that like what's how does somebody go about that because that seems like an like a um an extra level that's like an extra way of leveling up as it were 
I mean, that's sort of what I was trying to get at with, you know, if you imagine what if the story took place in this other time, um, is, is right. Cause all the anachropunks are, are tied somewhat to a, a decade or two. Um, and so I think, I think a lot of times with steampunk it's, so what, what in here is going to be mechanical is, is definitely a jumping off point. Um, what possible reason can I give someone to wear goggles? Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> right. Like you can start, you can start with some of these, um, aesthetic elements. Um, you know, diesel punk is very often related to the world wars. And so, you know, some of the stories, some of the source material, I mean, some of them are about soldiers. Um, and so that would be a, a jumping off point. Um, you know, and you kind of have to decide how, how aesthetic versus how, cause like I consider my noir story, I think of that as diesel punk mm-hmm. um, because it's stylistic, but there's no weird machinery. It's all just like, like there's no weird tech. There's no, the, the science fiction aspect of that story is completely lacking, but I, I feel very comfortable calling it diesel punk um, because of the stylistic thing. And so, yeah, you don't have to shoehorn goggles into a steampunk story, but that can be a way to start thinking about it. And is there a way to sort of, avoid the usual tropes of steampunk and diesel punk in any of these stories. Like you had just said, you don't, you don't need weird tech. You just need to put, let's say little red riding hood for an example, little red riding hood in world war two mm-hmm. or during prohibition and just, and just, and just leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause then what she has in her basket changes, doesn't uh, it? Or just or, what is she carrying through the woods? If it's Prohibition era, then she's a she's obviously a rum runner. See, that's the see. I mean, these I mean, the possibilities are endless. Yeah. And 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 for whatever reason, this thought popped inside my head: Could Frankenstein be a biopunk version of Pinocchio? Uh-huh. Like, which came first? <laughs> just out of curiosity. Um. You know, Pinocchio actually came kind of late. It was because all these other Grimm's tales that we've been talking about were recorded from the stories that had been around for a century already. Um, Carlo Collati actually wrote Pinocchio, I want to say the 1870s. So it's uh, Frankenstein could have been first. The thought had just. I don't want to take time to look this up right now, but I, I think actually Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus, was probably first. But, but remember, remember, the wood was always alive. In the original Pinocchio, nobody brought it to life. It was just magically alive and imbued with personality. So it actually seems more similar than maybe it actually was. <laughs> I'm actually looking up on DuckDuckGo right now. Okay. Well, and I feel bad. I wrote an article about Pinocchio a long time ago. I should know this. I, you know, I, could you could you find that? Because now... Now I'm fascinated. So yeah, it's on, I do a I do a, a blog series on Fridays, not every Friday, but a lot of Fridays. That's called Fairy Tale Fridays, and so I'll look at source material or I'll interview people who did fairy tale retelling. Um, and so I did it for one of the Fairy Tale Fridays. I'm looking at the um. I'm going back and forth between the two Wikipedia pages here. Between Pinocchio and the modern Prometheus? Exactly. And um, Pinocchio is a fictional character and the protagonist of the children's novel, The Adventures of Pinocchio, from 1883. 83, okay. So it was even later than I said. And then Frankenstein was written in 1818. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's old. And I could pick I could pick your brain um on this topic for ages. I got I yeah. fascinating. I think they're really they're really interesting. It cer- it certainly is. And the thing is is that I I mean I could I could just do an entire show with you on just Frankenstein. And what is and what is <laughs> what does Frankenstein really mean? 
because I had it a, is a, it is a fascinating story. It's it certainly is, and there's a whole bunch of 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 um, things that I've thought about, as in like um, the, the creature mm-hmm. that so many people misidentify as Frankenstein. The the the, the creature right. starts off looking for a, approval from his dad. Until he realizes like who and what his dad really is. And then the creature goes on, not a revenge killing spree. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> okay, a lot of it. That, that's literally what happened. <laughs> yes. I was trying to be facetious and not, spo- oh, spoiler alert. And then, but the... the it was written in, eight, in 1818. I don't think that you can actually spoil something that old. There might be some people who have not read the book yet. Um, yeah, but I, just, I think there has to be a limit on spoiler alert. Okay. Um, <laughs> and once it's become the fabric of our, of our literary society, I but, don't think he's... But the aspect of the hurt from the mm-hmm. creature comes from mm-hmm. the fact that Dr. Frankenstein brings the creature to life, and then almost immediately, Dr. Frankenstein goes on to the next thing. What's the next mm-hmm. thing he can do? Mm-hmm. And he sort of purposely abandons what is essentially his child. Right. And, and here's the other thought. Maybe how you view Frankenstein says more about you than the actual story. The thought had just occurred to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it certainly depends on which rendition you've seen or if it's, you know, the crazy crackling lightning bolt old you know movie the 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 movie from the 1930s 1931 film yeah which i always think it's so fascinating because if you you know when you read the original there is there is specifically left out how the creature was brought to life and everybody has internalized this lightning bolt thing and that was just one director of one movie and it's become canon now but like Victor says, I will not reveal how I did this because it had such terrible consequences. But you, I, I just, I, that's an amazing collective memory yes, that you, people have. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that, I mean, Prometheus brought fire down from the heavens. Right. And when you think of fire from the heavens, what else do you think? What fire comes from the heavens? Well, but this is a metaphorical spark of life. Right, exactly. So, I mean, yes, literally the fire that comes from the clouds is lightning, but that's, I don't think that's what the reference is. No, I don't, but I'm, I mean, we're also talking... I understand that that's why... I actually saw a steampunk version of Frankenstein that was like a micro-budget film that was shot in Texas and actually used like Texas historical landmarks. So it was a, you know, the reimagining of it. Um, and so, yeah, he had this, these gaskets in his neck that were leaking steam all the time. And so this is a, a steam and chemical way of bringing him to life. So, I mean, there's obviously different ways to do it. I just thought that was interesting. It's, yeah, it is. It, it is. It's fascinating. Um, before I let you go, because I, f- I, I feel as if I've, I've kept you long. Uh, I mean, if I, if I wasn't coughing... I would I would talk forever, but I don't want to keep coughing in your ear. <laughs> well, the magic, the power, and the magic of editing. Um, I, I I want you to to plug your stuff. I want you to share with us where can where can we find you? Where can we find your book? What's the best way to get it? And obviously, all the links are going to be on the show page on on the mm-hmm. Fedora Chronicles main site. But how can we get in touch with you? And, and get a hold of your book. Um, so, Fairy Tales Punk is available through Amazon in print and ebook. Um, and one thing that's important to mention is that it is illustrated. There are beautiful illustrations, one for each story. And I, I feel like the print layout really does justice to the images more so than the ebook layout. Um, so, on a personal level, I think the print book is worth it. Um, so yeah, some wonderful illustrations there. So that yeah, that's available through Amazon, um, and you can actually find all of my books if you if you search for Phoebe Darkling on Amazon. They're all there. Um, so that's three novels. There's also a nonfiction book 
that's called the Steampunk Handbook, mm-hmm. um, which is not available in ebook there because I actually compiled articles that I wrote. And so too much of it is available on the internet, but it's scattered all over the internet. So that's why I wanted to put it together in a book. But so I actually do have it for free as an ebook. If you come to phoebedarkling.com uh, and right on the homepage, there's a place where you can sign up for my e-newsletter and get the book for free. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> that is absolutely totally and it's it's exciting what you've done you got my creative juices flowing oh good i'm so glad i have my i have i have my uh clipboard out and i'm writing all of these notes okay and i'm thinking to myself i gotta contribute something next time phoebe it's <laughs> it's it's always phenomenal to have you on the show and let's Thanks not let's not wait three years to have you on again <laughs> Okay, sounds good. If you ever said, Eric, I want to talk about, I, I want to talk about something, just drop me a line, and 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 okay. we'll definitely arrange it. And, okay, sounds good. And and hopefully, <laughs> and hopefully, the next dog, my dog, doesn't get a case of stigmata again. Oh, because th- that's that's the reason why we didn't do this yesterday. Oh no! Because my my there's something there was something wrong with my dog, and we couldn't figure it out. And it's like, you know. Um, that would also make for an interesting story. That takes precedent. <laughs> she's 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 doing very very well right now. She's actually laying underneath me right now. She's all happy. So I come on anytime. Let's chat some more. And I got I got a ton of I got a ton of other questions I like to ask you about. I, I mean, you started me thinking about the Wolfman. Now I'm wondering, what's Phoebe's take on Dracula? Uh, that that would be a whole show to talk about vampires <laughs> well you know let's, let's let's save it for 2021 all right that sounds like that sounds great congratulations on surviving another episode of the Thor chronicles radio show find out more about the fedora chronicles by visiting our website thefedorachronicles.com that's where you can find our show notes past episodes and articles Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram by simply searching for us on those platforms. Don't forget to join our group on Facebook and follow us on Twitter so that you can keep up with what we will be talking about in the next episode. Facebook, Twitter, and our email address, fedorachronicle at google.com, are great ways to drop us a line with your comments and show topic suggestions. And if it's any good, we promise we will read your comment on the air. Support the show by contributing to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Fedora Chronicles. For a mere dollar a month, you get early access to the podcast, updates on what we're doing, and for $5 a month, you get all that and a t-shirt and coffee mug of your choice. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you to all of our listeners who are already contributing. You can also support the show and show off your incredible, impeccable taste by buying our merch at zazzle.com slash store slash Fedora Chronicles. The theme songs for the show are Royal Flush and Black Cabaret by Olive Music. All other music on the show is listed on the show page and has been provided to us by Premium Beats from Shutterstock. Copyright The Fedora Chronicles 2020, all rights reserved. This is Eric Renner King Fisk signing off and reminding you to keep your chins up and your fedoras on. <laughs>